Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So when I started this podcast four years ago, I decided that every subject I picked for the show would happen before 1970, the year I was born. Completely arbitrary, of course. I mean, everything before I was alive has to be history, right? (laughs) Well, obviously, time continues to pass. And number one, and I've already broken my own cutoff date more than once already anyway, Off the top of my head, the Sonny Liston episode, and recently the Harper Lee Willie Maxwell one, they come to mind. This episode today actually marks my first leap into the 80s, 1980 actually, so not too far into the decade. But it's such a great book, I couldn't resist. And I think rules are made to be broken, right? Especially silly ones like mine. But it will definitely be an exception. Uh, Don't expect it too often. I've got gangsters, mobsters, gunfighters, serial killers aplenty in the pipeline. (laughs) All right, let's begin. It is so great to have as my guest today, Peter Houlihan. He is a journalist and book review contributor for the Hearst Newspapers and the Associated Press. He's written for Crime Reads, Police One, Salon, and the Daily Mirror, He has also spent many years as an emergency medical technician. The book he's here to talk about is called Norco 80, The True Story of the Most Spectacular Bank Robbery in American History. So nice to talk with you. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. This is your first book, right? Yeah, it certainly is. It's my first uh, long-form effort, and uh, I've done a lot of journalism and and book reviews and and, and trade magazines and all kinds of stuff. But this is a uh, this is my first book-length effort. I'd love to know how you came to choose it as a topic. Well, the the incident itself took place in Riverside, California, and I grew up in Whittier. California, just uh, just about a dozen miles, 20 miles away from the location where it happened. I was 18 years old at the time, and I was absolutely captivated by it when it happened. And I was a bit of a news junkie and a surf punk and <laughs> mixture of all that. But I, uh, but I was uh, just absolutely uh, astounded by the event itself. And uh, so it always stuck with me. And when I did turn my sights to doing a, a book-length effort, um, I started to look into different stories, and Norco just really jumped out. And uh, once I started to dig in a little bit deeper and talk to some of the uh, – deputies and and civilians and uh, citizens and others involved, uh, it it just became apparent that there was a far deeper human story involved, 
than just a bang, bang, shoot them out. Um, it certainly is one of the most astonishing events in uh, law enforcement history. It is a wild firefight and running gun battle, but there is also a huge human element. And that's really what convinced me that I that this was a story that should be told. Wow. Yeah. So one of the things I appreciated from your book is that you were able to examine the event from all perspectives. You got firsthand information from both sides. Who were some of the people you've interviewed about this? And and what did you glean in those conversations that makes your telling of the story unique amongst all of the articles, documentaries, and movies out there about this? Well, the story itself, especially, you know, at the time I started researching this was a little bit over 35 years old. However, I was able to, with a lot of patience and a lot of diligence, was able to track down, locate, and speak with um, those who lived through it, who were involved with it on both sides, as you say. The law enforcement officers uh, were open to talking about it after a, a little bit of getting together with them and, and encouragement and, and certainly discussing with them what the goal of this book was, which was to tell a true story truthfully. And um, and then uh, also the, uh, the bank robbers themselves, the surviving bank robbers who are doing life without parole in the uh, California prison system, and uh, but also their family members and people who knew them back when it happened and and are really familiar with them. The ability to talk to people who are directly involved in an event like this is incredibly important to getting to the root of, uh, again, on the human side of things. It's extremely important. The advantage to a writer working on a a criminal incident, especially one that eventually goes to trial, is that there is an immense amount of documentation that it, that uh, on the crime itself, and then of course during the uh, testimony in the trials. However, if you really want to get to the root of the story, you have to spend a lot of time just listening to the people who were involved in it. And I was able to uh, sit down and otherwise communicate and correspond with uh, almost every major player in this incident who is still alive. And that's, that's most of them. So this story, at least at the beginning, revolved primarily around a man by the name of George Wayne Smith, who was in his late 20s, right? When he began plotting the crime. Could you talk about him, his background, and, and how he went from what appeared to be a relatively normal person to someone capable of planning a robbery of such grandiosity. Yeah, certainly. One of the great uh, puzzles to figure out on this was the motivation of the five young men involved. And again, this is uh, this is 1980 in Southern California, Riverside County, and you have five young men with no meaningful criminal records whatsoever, certainly no history of violence personally or um, legally. Yet, when they decided to commit this bank robbery, they armed themselves and prepared themselves and were willing to kill not only anyone, but everyone who got in their way. And uh, it's certainly an important part of this story to try to figure out how uh, young men, George Wayne Smith was in his late 20s, the other uh, principal person in planning this bank robbery was uh, Christopher Harvin, who together they owned a house. He was also in his late 20s. George was 27. Chris was 28. Uh, Chris recruited his little brother, Russ, who was 26. And um, and together they recruited the Delgado brothers, who were 21 years old and 17 years old. But George Wayne Smith, uh, all of them came from Orange County, California. George Wayne Smith, he was a great student. He was captain of his tennis team uh, for four years of a championship tennis team. He was the editor of the school newspaper. He was on the chess team, a member of the choir. George was an extremely responsible and high-achieving young man. 
And uh, a couple things happened during the 1970s in George's youth that certainly contributed later to his decision to try to pull off a, as you say, a very grandiose bank robbery. And uh, one was he became involved in the aggressively evangelical, born-again Christian youth movement uh, that swept through Orange County, California, and then throughout the nation um, in the uh, early 1970s. It was known as the Jesus Movement. And these were uh, very large ministries whose theology centered around the Book of Revelation end times theology, the rapture, and the second coming. And uh, George became convinced that the, uh, the second coming and the rapture and all the cataclysmic events that would lead up to it were imminent. And uh, he had pegged that eventually to uh, the rapture occurring before the year of 1981, and these bank robberies happened in May of uh, 1980. George also joined the Army right out of high school in 1972 and was trained as a, an artilleryman, and he was trained in tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, and he was stationed in Germany. And uh, so the existential threat of Nuclear obliteration was not an abstract concept for George, and George was certainly not alone during the 1970s in thinking that this might be the inevitable or certainly uh, probable uh, obliteration of mankind or, you know, event that would create the the breakdown of civil society and the decimation of, of society as we knew it. So George, um, he, he believed that the end was coming, and he saw clearly from his military experience how that end would come about. And then George and Chris also experienced a lot of uh, personal downturns leading up to the time of, of the bank robbery. They uh, lost wives, they lost their families, they lost their jobs, they uh, were running out of money, and certainly that propelled them towards this. Um, but you talk about a grandiosity you mentioned. Um, George Smith had a personality makeup that lent itself to grandiosity, the idea that his needs and wants were more important than those around him, that he knew better than those around him. And uh, for the most part, leading up to this, George had kind of focused that for the good. The people around him would tell you, George would do anything for you. He would help you out. If he had money, he'd lend it to you. But uh, this kind of grandiosity and this view of yourself as, uh, as destined for great things um, really kind of betrayed George when he started to have these downturns in his personal life. Most of us might have seen them as uh, just kind of a rough patch, but uh, George had this cognitive dissonance between the person he believed himself to be and destined to be and what his life had become. And, uh, and for George, he had his back against the wall, and he looked at it as a desperate situation. So there were a number of factors that led George Smith to this place, and once George got there, he kind of swept up the others around him by his force of character and convictions. Yeah, I do want to ask you about that. His ability to manipulate, coerce, talk these other guys into what most of us would consider a completely absurd request. <laughs> Going heavily armed into a bank in broad daylight. Yeah. But he not only convinced himself that that was a good idea, but others as well. What was it about his personality that allowed him to do that? Well, George is a very intelligent, extremely articulate, very persuasive uh, young man at the time, and also completely convinced of his convictions. So this was not a case of George converting all of these uh, these other participants necessarily to his theology 
and this was certainly not a case of a cult following. But once George got his mindset on it, um, he's a, just a very persuasive young man. And uh, the, the guys around him, the ones he recruited into this, were significantly less sophisticated. Not stupid, but su- significantly less sophisticated. And they looked at a guy like George, who they'd known for a while, and, and George was the smartest guy they knew. And if George said he had a fail, fail-safe plan, uh, you know, they, they believed it. And they all had their own reasons for getting involved, for wanting money, and uh, none of them were just pure greed, but uh, but they all had their own reasons. And when George came up and dangled it in front of them, what what you know what what he thought was going to be a, a two hundred fifty thousand, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollar take, uh, you know, they went right along with it. So as you've just said, this has nothing to do with cults. And I'm not sure where the Southern California Jesus movement falls into the religious spectrum. But you've communicated with him yourself. Does he have that kind of aura about him, like a Ted Bundy, um, where he could like sweet talk his way into certain situations, you know? Um, just to give a better characterization of the Jesus movement and the uh, the again the ev- evangelical born again Christian movement that came out of Orange County and then kind of spread out throughout the throughout the nation in uh, during the 1970s, um, this was kind of Pentecostalist style ministries. Um, They started small and grew very big. They were youth-oriented. We're talking about kind of speaking in tongues and uh, faith healing and things like that. And I'm certainly not suggesting that the people who get involved in this or had their beliefs in this would necessarily lead them to bank robbery or anything like that. In fact, those ministries did a lot of good, but they were also very heavy-handed. And they were very much uh, uh, based on the um, the idea that the rapture and the second coming and the tribulations and catastrophic uh, events could happen at any moment if you were not ready. Um, switching to George Wayne Smith, George is not a Ted Bundy type of guy. Uh, George believed that he had the right plan. And George also had this uh, self-confidence and this grandiosity that he truly believed that uh, this was a plan that could not fail. And um, George, George's persuasiveness was really just a straightforward, I've got a plan for a bank robbery, and uh, I've got this all set up, and uh, this, is, this cannot fail. And we are going to go in and we are never going to get taken alive. And, um, you know, uh, that's how he really brought them into it. It was not through any other um, uh, it it wasn't through a deception. It wasn't through a um, a, some sort of uh, philosophy or theology or anything like that. It was uh, when it came to the bank robbery. George was just a guy who you thought they thought had it all together. And if he said this was going to work, it was going to work. So how would robbing this bank in his mind help him prepare for the rapture? George Smith's main reason for wanting this money was uh, George wanted to buy a cabin in a remote area of Utah that he could then uh, supply, stockpile with supplies and weapons and bring all of his loved ones. And uh, from there, they'd be able to ride out the catastrophic events and the breakdown of uh, civil society and the lawlessness that would then lead into the rapture, second coming and tribulations. So that that ostensibly, and I think that really, in fact, was his uh, what propelled him mostly. Um, he had also lost his job and was beginning to ro- run low on money and uh, was getting a little desperate in that way. Um, but uh, but the uh, the main factor was uh, his his desire to uh, to buy this uh, location where he could ride out the end of times. So the second coming hasn't come. The prophecies in Revelation haven't yet come true. Did you ask him about that? Is there some some sense of disappointment in that for him? Did he feel as though he was deceived? Does he still believe it's coming? There were three surviving bank robbers. The uh, the two that I've actually sat face to face with for hours were the Harvin brothers. 
Christopher and uh, Russell Harvin. George and I just exchanged letters. You know, we, we wrote back and forth. And um, George doesn't address that exactly. In fact, he skirts around that quite a bit. But George wouldn't be the first person with deep conviction of a calendar date for the end of the world that then goes by. You know, particularly the Bible is written, you know, it's a lot of uh, parables and, and open for interpretation. So George kind of falls back on, well, maybe I was wrong about uh, getting that final date in terms of my matching up current events with biblical prophecy, but that it, it you know, it's, it's, it's coming at some point. So, uh, you know, we, we wrote back and forth a little bit about it, but, you know, he didn't take that on head on with me. Forgive me if I'm veering off topic too far, but it's such a fascinating one for me. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, it is fascinating, The uh, and it can be a, a rabbit hole, the different theologies and the interpretations of theologies and, um, and, and all that. And George was certainly a very versed in biblical prophecy, very versed in all the different uh, interpretations, and, um, and uh, he happened to go with one that uh, really pegged the catastrophic events is occurring in in 1980 and leading up to a to the rapture which would happen before 1981 so his plan for the bank robbery what was the perfect plan for him how did he believe he would accomplish it what was at the bottom of this plan that george put together was that if they were to confront police at any point, they would be able to overwhelm them with firepower and then make their escape. However, George's plan was also to avoid that. He did not go out with any intent to, uh, to kill police or to have a confrontation. But in the event that it were to happen, George's plan was that they would be so well-armed and so well-prepared that they would be able to overwhelm anything law enforcement could throw at them at the time. And he was not wrong about that in terms of uh, how it ended up transpiring, even if it did not end in their ultimate escape. So George put together a very elaborate plan. In fact, the number of moving parts in this plan almost guaranteed that it would fail at some point, that something would go wrong. But uh, the first thing they did is they armed themselves with high-powered semi-automatic rifles with high-capacity magazines and thousands of rounds of ammunition. These are AR-15s, Heckler & Koch, uh, HK-91, HK-93. These are essentially the civilian version of military uh, of the M16 military grade weapon firing 223 rounds now the HK91 is a fires a 308 round and a 308 is an absolute cannon i mean there's not a animal on the face of the planet that can't be brought down by a single round from a 308 from a half mile away and that's what George Wayne Smith was firing and they also were they had uh handguns on them. They had, as I said, they had high capacity magazines that were uh, uh, 40 round magazines that they had taped together jungle style, one up, one down, one up. So once you were done with one, you just pop it out, flip it over, put it right back in, which allowed them to fire, you know, anywhere between 100 and 120 shots in a minute, minute and a half. And um, they were all five of them were equipped with uh, with those either 223 or 328 and additionally, they had, like I said, sidearms on them. Uh, Christopher Harvin entered the bank with 750 rounds, 760 rounds of uh, 223 ammunition strapped to his chest. In addition to that, they made homemade fragmentation grenades using the uh, the recipe out of the Anarchist Cookbook, and these are uh, these are beer cans that are filled with uh, a detonator and shrapnel taped up. Uh, strapped to a dowel so they could be fired out of the barrel of a shotgun uh, to a range of uh, 100 yards. Uh, they had Molotov cocktails, 
and um, and then they had survival supplies, knives, gas masks, all kinds of things with them. So the first part of, to answer your question, the first part of George's plan was just to be absolutely armed to the teeth, and they and they absolutely were. Wow. <laughs> so I don't think we should get into all the details of the robbery itself, just because I don't want to take away from all the excitement of how it happens for potential readers, because it really does unfold like an action film, starting almost immediately after the group walks into the security Pacific Bank. But maybe just kind of walk us through generally and maybe point out where things didn't go according to plan as, as opposed to what was supposed to happen, how things began unraveling very, very quickly, basically just minutes after walking into the bank. Yeah, as with most bank robberies that go wrong, it was a combination of uh, bad planning and bad luck. Um, George Smith's plan was uh, was very comprehensive, and it included earlier that morning stealing a van at gunpoint from a shopping mall 20 miles away, tying up the owner and, and in the back so he could not report it stolen, and then using that van for the robbery. They then uh, parked two cold cars uh, that they would swap into after they made their escape, and uh, they parked those about a mile away. Additionally, they uh, set a diversion bomb a mile away to the south underneath a gas main, and they, uh, they set that off. And obviously, the uh, purpose of that was to create a very large explosion in which every first responder, including the police and Norco, would, uh, would be headed towards. And once that happened, they would sweep into the bank. They spend two and a half minutes in the bank at most, head out, uh, jump back in their van, dump the van up at the coal cars, take the coal cars, head to Las Vegas, and um, launder the money through the casinos there. The places where it went wrong was, number one, the diversion bomb. The diversion bomb was spotted. It did go off. Uh, it was essentially six beer bottles filled with leaded gasoline with a detonation device underneath a gas main. Uh, and it did go off, and it, it, it caused quite an explosion. But a passerby jumped out of his truck and put it out with a uh, fire extinguisher. And at that point, they probably should have called it a kidnapping and uh, and gone home. But they were sitting across from the Security Pacific Bank, and uh, George decided to go ahead with the plan anyways, even though he did not see all the first responders headed south on Hamner Avenue. The very unlucky part that happened was that when they jumped out of the van, four of them with a 17-year-old Billy Delgado as the getaway driver behind the wheel, they were spotted by a teller at a bank across the street heading into the bank. And they were wearing ski masks, military ponchos, and carrying these high-powered rifles. She is the one who called the Riverside County Sheriff as they went into the bank. And as they were coming out of the bank, I mean, it was absolute chaos in the bank, as it is with uh, every takeover robbery. Uh, but nobody got killed. Nobody got shot. And they did exit the bank two and a half minutes later. But uh, by then, Riverside County sheriffs were sending out a dispatch for a 211 in progress at the Security Pacific Bank in Norco at the intersection of 4th and Hamner. And this is where very bad luck comes in for not just the bank robbers, but inevitably many of those involved, the, the law enforcement. And that was that Deputy Glenn Belaski happened to be sitting at that intersection looking directly at that bank when that dispatch tone came out at the exact same time that these heavily armed bank robbers were coming out of the bank. And Glenn Belaski ended up coming head to head with these bank robbers coming out of this bank. And from there, it just erupted into absolute chaos uh, in a, a ferocious firefight and running gun battle that went on for over an hour and stretched for over 40 miles. So one of the horrifying things was this mismatch of firepower between law enforcement and these robbers. Could you address this a bit? Absolutely. The uh, the sheriff's deputies uh, who came up against these bank robbers that day were guarding the Wild West with essentially the same weapons they had guarded it 
with 100 years ago, a six shooter and a Winchester shotgun. And um, these were obviously no match for the type of firepower being uh, brought to bear by the bank robbers involved. And uh, it turned out to be, uh, as George Smith uh, predicted, a complete mismatch, um, even though it did not end the way that George Smith thought it would. So ultimately, when the dust settles, how many deaths were there and what did the scene of the crime look like? Certainly, the scope of the event that unfolded after these uh, bank robbers engaged their initial uh, Riverside County Sheriff's deputy outside the bank is absolutely astonishing. Uh, It began with a ferocious firefight in a crowded Southern California intersection between uh, four heavily armed bank robbers and uh, and three sheriff's deputies. And uh, what happened there was the uh, the getaway driver was was killed on site. They uh, abandoned their their uh, van that they had uh, carjacked, and they got another vehicle. And this was a Ford F-250 pickup that was built up with cabinets on the side and was just kind of the perfect uh, perfect escape vehicle. It then turned into a running gun battle through the suburban streets of Riverside County and onto a crowded interstate highway, I-15, and then uh, into the mountains above Los Angeles and ended in an ambush uh, by the bank robbers of uh, almost 40 pursuing law enforcement vehicles from uh, five different agencies on a fire road 6,500 feet above uh, Los Angeles, clinging to the side of Mount Baldy. And uh, after that ambush, the uh, surviving four bank robbers disappeared into the canyons of Lytle Creek and what started the uh, the largest manhunt in uh, California history. Uh, when it was all over, the toll was uh, three dead. There were 15 wounded, including seven uh, sheriff's deputies. Um, one sheriff deputy was killed. There were 32 police uh, law enforcement vehicles that were either disabled or destroyed by gunfire or fragmentation grenades. And that included a uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's helicopter that was downed over uh, over uh, Fontana over the I-15 freeway. So, uh, it, you know, the 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 toll and the numbers of this event and the scope of it are are really quite amazing. We haven't seen anything like that before or since. How did the helicopter go down? It was not until Miraloma, about 10 minutes into the pursuit, that a police helicopter actually engaged the pursuit. And that was a chopper named Baker One from Riverside City Police Department. But as this pursuit made its way into San Bernardino County, Baker One peeled off and a river, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Helicopter 40 King 2 took over the pursuit and was uh, shadowing the truck at about 800 feet over the uh, Interstate 15 freeway. Uh, when George Smith turned his uh, 308 caliber uh, rifle on it and, uh, and did indeed strike it in the belly of the helicopter, um, actually struck the skid of the helicopter, fragmented into three main pieces and, and penetrated the uh, bottom of the helicopter, uh, tearing into the electrical panel, uh, mostly the communications, and uh, filling the uh, cockpit with blue smoke. Um, back in those days, and indeed with 40 King II, they were mostly, uh, uh, they were mostly Vietnam heli- combat helicopter pilots uh, back from the war, and uh, indeed... Uh, um, that's exactly who the pilot was of 40 King 2, and he managed to uh, to bring the uh, bring the craft down before it uh, before it crashed. But uh, it was literally, uh, you know, shot out of the sky. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. 
Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. One of the, the interesting side stories among many in this book were the circumstances that led to some FBI agents finding their way to the shootout. Could you tell the story of how they found themselves there? Yeah, this was not a good day for the FBI. <laughs> um, they, uh, the FBI, the San Diego field office of the FBI began the day tracking a gang of bank robbers who had called the Stopwatch Gang, who had robbed four banks in San Diego County. They were considered armed and uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, they had the uh, they, they, these were heavily armed bank robbers who would enter into the bank and use the stopwatch to uh, to time their take and then and then get out. And there were four or five of them. They started to uh, there was two FBI cars that started to tail these bank robbers out of uh, into San, in San Diego County, entirely expecting that they were on their way to to uh, to commit another bank robbery. And as they tailed them, they left San Diego and they entered into Riverside. And then the FBI, the pursuing FBI cars lost the stopwatch gang near the town of Norco, California. And uh, in Riverside County, and instead of contacting the Riverside County sheriffs to let them know that they had just lost a armed and uh, extremely dangerous gang of bank robbers in their county who they expected to be robbing a bank, they decided that they did not want to blow their cover or bring in local police. So they said nothing. And. Within an hour on scanner, these two FBI vehicles with with six agents suddenly heard the radio traffic involving this gang of bank robbers who were heavily armed and were absolutely shooting up uh, sheriff's deputies and vehicles uh, throughout Riverside County, beginning in the town of Norco. And within 10 minutes, uh, maybe even a little bit less, of this firefight that unfolded in this intersection right outside the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, Suddenly, FBI agents from the San Diego office are showing up and starting to ask questions, much to the complete befuddlement of the Riverside County Sheriff's deputies involved. Needless to say, it was a reckoning for the San Diego field office of the FBI when they finally had to uh, confess up to uh, what they had done to the uh, Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Um, to make things worse, the, river, the FBI later released the names of the uh, Norco bank robbers who had escaped into the canyons, and uh, what they released was the name of their stopwatch gang. These had turned out to be 
people who were not involved with the Stopwatch gang and were certainly not involved with the Norco bank robbery. And it even included uh, the name of uh, one of the victims of the Norco bank robbery. So all in all, it was a terrible day for the FBI. So I'd love to shift to the trial. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is one of the first death penalty trials in California, right? Yeah, this uh, happened within uh, two years of the uh, the California Supreme Court reinstating the death penalty in the state of California. And this was one of uh, the first death penalty trials in uh, Riverside County, uh, I won't say history, but since the reinstatement. And these, these criminals on trial, they had some pretty good attorneys representing them. They certainly had some very energetic and creative. <laughs> Aggressive. And, uh, yeah. I mean, what they had was uh, they had a couple private attorneys and a, a public defender who turned out to be absolute pit bulls. And, uh, you know, in the end, what they were trying to do was to save the lives of their clients. All three surviving bank robbers were tried together. And... Um, all of them were looking at the possibility of death. The, uh, they were caught red-handed enough that there was not a possibility that they would be found not guilty and walk, but uh, they certainly could very well have faced the death penalty uh, due to the killing of a sheriff's deputy, as well as uh, being uh, put on trial for murder of a 17-year-old Billy Delgado, their getaway driver. But... Uh, the confrontation and the conflict and the dynamic between these three uh, defense attorneys, uh, you know, who weren't making a weren't getting rich off this trial. And it was a trial that went on for months and months. But the uh, confrontation and conflict between them and the uh, uh, the prosecutors involved was monumental. It was volatile. It was explosive. It was explosive in the courtroom. It was explosive out of the courtroom. And uh, it really uh, it, it really turned into quite a circus that was you know, heartbreaking, tragic, as well as extremely comical at times and absurd. What were some of the more outrageous antics that that highlighted the craziness of the trial for you? Well, there were a few uh, major moments within this trial that were very astonishing, uh, not to mention just the things that would go on a day-to-day basis. Um, one of the uh, one of the the most startling had to do with the uh, defense team of uh, George Wayne Smith's defense team. Uh, his uh, his attorney was a uh, was a guy named Clayton Adams, uh, an absolute pit bull, and his uh, the defense investigator assigned to his team was a young attractive woman named uh, Jeannie Painter. Uh, she was 33 years old. She was a highly regarded investigator. Investigator for the public defender's office with hundreds of uh, felony trials under her belt. And uh, as this trial went on and on for months and months, Jeannie Painter began to get under the, uh, the sway of George Wayne Smith. And uh, what occurred then was, uh, was some instances of sexual misconduct within the uh, jailhouse, um, extending to the court house itself, accusations of smuggling drugs, instances of bringing in uh, what the jailers uh, termed as naked photographs of herself in various positions, um, and really erupted into a scandal that uh, that threatened to derail uh, the entire trial and throw it into a mistrial. Um, I will say this, that Jeannie Painter has always said that these accusations were not true, and I do represent her point of view in this book entirely, as well as kind of the human side of Jeannie Painter um, in terms of kind of how how she did uh, form a relationship with George Smith beyond just professional. Um, what is truly startling about it is after George Wayne Smith was convicted and sentenced, uh, Jeannie Painter and George Smith were married. Um, that is certainly one of the more scandalous uh, parts of this trial. Uh, there was also an instance where Christopher Harvin, who was George Smith's roommate and also the, the other leader of this uh, plan and the robbery, 
And he, uh, at the very 11th hour, decided to throw up a very bizarre defense in which uh, he and his attorney uh, said that, that Chris Harvin hadn't even been there, that he had decided to bail out of the plan at the last minute, that he wasn't in the bank at all. In fact, that he'd only been forced back in the truck and forced to drive it uh, at gunpoint by Manny Delgado. And it was truly a bizarre moment and a dumbfounding moment and one that absolutely uh, caused a rift between his uh, co-defendants because what he did in the process was that he put guns in the hands of his brother and his best friend uh, that could have sent them to the gas chamber. So how did that marriage work out? Well, you know, Jeannie Painter was... You know, it'd be easy to stereotype Jeannie Painter as uh, one of these women who loved bad boys, and she wasn't. She was a young woman involved in a very high-stakes game. She was uh, passionate, and she was compassionate, and uh, she was fighting uh, alongside George Smith to save his life. Uh, she was someone who came out of the 60s, believed that defendants were always uh, at a disadvantage to uh, the prosecution and that the death penalty was absolutely unconstitutional and immoral. And um, when you kind of are engaged in this kind of thing, then, then this, these kind of this camaraderie and, and things develop. Uh, you know, Jeannie, Jeannie Painter, uh, several years later, kind of realized that <laughs> a uh, marriage with a, uh, uh, a prisoner doing life without parole was not the way to go. And, um, and Jeannie Painter married soon after and a, a local attorney and had a long uh, marriage um, up until her death in, in 2018. And, but kind of one of the strange secrets about Jeannie Painter that got revealed later in, uh, in the trial was that she had been married before to a previous client, a second degree murderer, who was doing 45 years in the California prison system. So she certainly had her uh, unusual psychological makeup and made some questionable decisions as a young lady. But uh, I tried to make sure that I, uh, that I portrayed her in a very human way and in a way that preserved her humanity and really let the reader understand the kind of person Jeannie Painter was. So even through the verdict and the sentencing, George Wayne Smith still clung to the idea of an impending rapture, right? He did. I think one of the things that George Wayne Smith did was uh, he kind of fell back on that a little bit in terms of a defense strategy. If George Smith and also Christopher Harvin did as well, who, uh, you know, who had his own ideas about uh, the approaching apocalypse and doomsday. Um, but both of them kind of fell back on it. Uh, the, the thinking being that um, they weren't just greedy bank robbers looking out, looking to score some cash, that they had a higher calling, that they truly believed that what they were doing was righteous and that they were called to do it. George, like I said before, George, no question, George Smith was an absolute true believer. Um, he absolutely believed in the in the imminence of the uh, of, of the rapture, the second coming, and all the cataclysmic events that would lead up to it. And and he remains that to the to this day. Just as to when exactly it's going to happen, uh, you know, he's less sure of that now. Um, and he does recognize that uh, that what he did was absolutely wrong and misguided and that he betrayed his faith as well as uh, caused a lot of uh, human damage along the way. So there has been some remorse shown by these three? Well, it's interesting. All three of them... The first thing, and it seems to be the most important thing to them, is that they feel that they were absolutely railroaded in this trial and that they should not be in prison uh, any longer, that they feel that they should have gotten 25 to life and that they should be out now, which is rather astonishing for anyone who looks at the fact that they were uh, convicted of 46 major felonies, including kidnapping, first-degree murder, 
24, 26 uh, uh, counts of attempted murder on a police officer, explosives, and any number of things. Um, when it comes to remorse, uh, once you get kind of past that with these guys um, and how, how they feel they were victimized in, the, in this trial, uh, George Wayne Smith, at the very, very end of uh, when I was finishing up this book and finishing up the edits, wrote me a letter, and he, uh, he clearly understands the, the damage that he has caused and uh, the destruction of lives deaths. And he said, uh, you know, I know I owe the Delgado family an apology. I know I owe the family of the officer killed an apology. I realize I betrayed my faith and I was misguided and I have to live with that every day of my life. Chris Harvin and Russ Harvin are a little bit less clear, but there is no doubt that they understand exactly the consequences of their actions that day. And uh, they seem a little bit more uh, remorseful about what they did to their own lives, but there is certainly is an acknowledgement that they uh, that they did something absolutely terrible that day. Oh, that that leads me into my next question perfectly, because one of the most compelling parts of your book for me has to do with the psychological, the emotional aftermath of the shootout, specifically for the the brave officers that were involved in this, especially as it relates to to, to post traumatic stress. Could you give us your take on this? How did this thing affect their lives both then and now? My initial interest in uh, in taking a further look at this event was to see how a tragic event and violent event on this scale, how it ripples through the generations. And I had actually approached the LA Times about doing an article uh, on the 30th anniversary to take a look at exactly that. What is the long-term impact of something like this? And uh, certainly the impact it had on the law enforcement officers involved, uh, their families, and uh, also the families of the uh, of the bank robbers involved was a very important important part of this book. And uh, there's a lot of talk about post-traumatic stress disorder uh, nowadays, and legitimately so, and rightfully so. Uh, in 1980, law enforcement was not aggressively addressing traumatic incidences among their uh, members. Some were just beginning to. Others were not doing it at all. These are some tough guys who have gone through a lot in their careers, but the experience of coming under that amount of firepower and being completely outgunned and helpless and having your patrol vehicle ripped apart by gunfire, being hit by high-powered weapons, and then also, of course, the element of having a fellow deputy uh, die and uh, the deputy that um, uh, that was killed was a senior deputy on the force. He was a green beret. He was a guy that everyone looked up to. And when you take all that together, uh, these guys were, um, you know, they, they lived with this for a very long time. They lived with guilt, um, and some more than others. And some had gone through more intense experiences than others. Some had seen their fellow deputy killed right in front of them. Others had simply had their their vehicle hit by sometimes as many as forty six rounds of uh, high powered uh, high powered uh, rifle fire. And, uh, you know, it rippled down through the years. And uh, you look, and in the years following, um, uh, many of these had their marriages fall apart. They turned on each other. They turned on their own department, accused them of abandoning them, accused them of, of not preparing them properly. Uh, there was a huge riff among the deputies in their own department and their sheriff. And there were a lot of accusations, and they were extremely bitter about this event afterwards. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department did not honor these deputies, um, including the deputy that was killed, until 20 years later because it was such a bitter event. And, uh, and you know, the, frankly, they did not take on aggressively addressing deputies who had uh, – and, and law, other law enforcement who had gone through events like this. So, um, you know, there, there was a heavy toll paid by these deputies dozens of them. And as a person who has spent years as an emergency medical technician, you've seen some horrible things. You must connect to this on a special level because of your own background, I assume. 
I understand it. I get it. And I can also see the way that it's aggressively addressed in most uh, first responder agencies today compared to the way it's not. And, uh, you know, the way that we deal with it, if, if my fire department, my ambulance agency or whoever I'm working with has uh, has been involved in a, a particularly upsetting event, a uh, horrific event, you know, whether it be involving pediatric cases or whether it be involved in uh, car crashes or whether it be, uh, you know, Sandy Hook Elementary School, which is, you know, one uh, one town away from us and which I was one of the first responders on scene. You know, you, you take it on, you get everybody in a room and you start to talk about it and everybody uh, everybody knows that they can get the help they need confidentially. So in that respect, it's certainly uh, I certainly understand it. And, uh, you know, the concept of, of how these things can affect people and, uh, and what's the, the measures that need to be taken to address it early on so it doesn't, doesn't spiral. This shootout, the murders that resulted, led to the militarization of police departments all across the country, wouldn't you say? Norco was really a uh, gateway event to what is now called uh, referred to as the militarization of local police forces. There's certainly many stops along the way that lead to what we see now. And, um, uh, you know, for better and for worse, and it's very much a political and, and hot topic now. But um, in the book, I just talk about the, uh, you know, the contribution Norco had in terms of the escalation of weaponry. Um, the police, uh, the law, all law enforcement agencies involved in this were so, uh, so outgunned and they had begun to see these weapons show up on the street, but mostly just in these drug gangs, um, certainly not to this degree. And um, at the time of the Norco Bank robbery, San Bernardino and Riverside County sheriffs had two semi-automatic uh, rifles uh, in their possession between them. Um, Riverside didn't even know where theirs was, and San Bernardino's was the uh, the one that they had conf- an M16 they had confiscated from a from a drug dealer. So they just they did not have SWAT teams. Those were some some of the cities around did, but um, uh, within a year, both Riverside, Riverside and San Bernardino had almost uh, had had a 150 semi-automatic rifles on order. And um, were migrating the uh, sidearms from uh, six-shot revolvers to, uh, you know, the 15-round semi-automatic uh, pistols um, that you see all law enforcement's use today. Um, it was really the beginning of what they call the patrol rifle programs. And that means putting these kind of high-powered rifles, deploying them in the field um, with patrol units uh and um, that really was not done before that, and in many ways, justifiably so. I mean, it, it was a clear indicator that 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 law enforcement needed to adjust to the realities of what they were seeing on the street. And Norco brought that home very clearly to the, particularly to those two, two departments. So this book just came out this summer, a couple of months, right? Yeah, it was released in June. Um, and, uh, so we're a few months into it. And again, it's been getting great reviews and, and it's available pretty much everywhere books are sold. Do you have any special events on the horizon for, for people who might want to meet you in person? Well, uh, a lot of the events I have coming up are law enforcement events, but if, uh, if anyone wants to see where I'm going to be, and I, I do have some library events and um, bookstore events in, in Southern California, then go to my website at peterhulahan.com or just, uh, you know, Google Narco 80 author website or whatever you do out there to get to it. And I do have a list of events that I'm going to be at. And I'll just say this, not, not, not to, not to do a sales pitch, but when I, um, when I do appearances, I use maps and photographs and, uh, the original Riverside County Sheriff's police radio traffic. And I really try to make it engaging, um, involve the audience, uh, you know, and uh, really kind of bring the whole thing to life because I think that's important. And if people want to contact you, yeah, the best way, way is through my website, and it's been great for people who have reached out, law enforcement people and stuff, and just given me feedback or told me where I might have made a mistake, <laughs> but uh, which is totally fine. But um, yeah, the best way is an email through my website, and, and you know, I'm on uh, Twitter and I have a Norco80 Facebook page, but uh, I'm not a extremely energetic uh, social media guy, but I'm out there. I've got to say, when I first saw the title of your book, I kept thinking narco, narco, not norco. 
Norco, of course, is the place where this happened. But but if people are searching for it, it's spelled N O R C O. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's occurred to us. It hasn't always worked against us because I had a couple people show up at a book signing, and uh, they thought they they were really into uh, you know the whole uh, narcos on HBO or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> thought they were going to that, and they ended up loving the uh, loving the, the the presentation and buying the book. So yeah, but no, it's Norco N O R C O, and that's a that's a little town in Riverside, California, where it happened. Well, thank you so much for your time. Eric, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Again, I've been speaking to Peter Houlihan. He is the author of Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Riminus, and have a safe tomorrow. Tomorrow.